This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force commercial and broadcast weather forecasting with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've worked providing weather support to Air Force One and Marine One. I have tropical weather experience in Florida and severe weather experience in Oklahoma. I've briefed flight crews on the weather around the world. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing commercial weather support to clients near and far. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when the weather is a contributing factor to the crash. Today's episode, when the C-124 crashed into a mountain and was then buried under snow and ice for more than 60 years, is about how a post-war Air Force heavy lift cargo plane loaded with service members crashed into Alaska's Mount Gannett while flying blind in a snowstorm over some of the harshest terrain Alaska has to offer. The military attempted an early rescue, but then abandoned the rescue and informed family members there would be no remains to bury. And with each passing year and decade, more and more snow and ice piled up on top of the crash site, further removing the wreckage and human remains from any hope of ever being recovered. That is, until 2012, when an Air National Guard helicopter crew on a training mission spied a yellow life raft on the frozen glacier surface below. What follows is a story of a tragic plane crash in horrible winter weather over harsh Alaskan terrain, and then the discovery of the wreckage 60 years later, and the unbelievably heart-wrenching and ongoing recovery of the remains of those lost to the crash and the people who have made it their mission to bring closure to the families by returning to the recovery site each summer, year after year, to continue searching for remains. And now, more than 70 years after the crash, there may be a second tragedy looming, one that's just a few hundred feet away and closing. On November 22, 1952, just five days before Thanksgiving, and almost two and a half years into the Korean War, a U.S. Air Force C-124 Globemaster II slammed into the southern face of Mount Gannett, one of the many peaks in the Chugach Mountains of eastern and southern Alaska. The Chugach Range is about 250 miles or 402 kilometers long, and about 60 miles or 97 kilometers wide. The range mostly hugs the southern coastal portions of Alaska, just west of Canada's Yukon Territory, to the Cook Inlet near Anchorage. Any aircraft flying into Anchorage from the lower 48 or southwestern Canada would have to navigate the Chugach Mountains. And if not navigate the actual mountains, then be aware of their location and navigate over or away from them altogether. This particular flight's destination was Elmendorf Air Force Base on the north side of the city of Anchorage. Mount Gannett is located 60 miles or 96 kilometers east of the Ted Stevens International Airport and 53 miles east of Elmendorf Air Force Base. The easiest and most direct way to Elmendorf from the south would be far away from Mount Gannett and the Chugach Range and well out over the waters of the Gulf of Alaska. Slamming into Mount Gannett could only indicate that the plane was well and thoroughly off course. Or maybe not. We'll look at all the scenarios, but first, let's take a look at the Globemaster II. 
The Globemaster II was a new airplane in 1952, meaning even if this particular aircraft was one of the first off the assembly line, it would not yet be three years old. The plane was designed after World War II, and the first flight of the C-124 was in November of 1949, almost three years to the day before this crash. The plane was officially introduced to the Air Force in May of 1950 and had become the primary heavy lifter of the 1950s. With jet engines beginning to come online at the end of World War II, it seems to me that this radial piston aircraft would be destined for a relatively short service life, but that was not the case. It was a devoted and hard worker for almost a quarter century. The Globemaster name has adorned three Air Force cargo planes. The original Globemaster, the C-74, debuted in 1945 to fill the need of a long-distance heavy lifter to serve the war theaters of Europe and Asia, but its contract was terminated immediately after the surrender of Japan in August of 1945. This brought World War II to an end, and only 14 of the original Globemaster planes were built. Four years later came the C-124, the Globemaster II. On the drawing board, it had a bit of a head start as it used the original Globemaster as a prototype. In cargo mode, the new plane could carry tanks, trucks, bulldozers, guns, and other heavy outsized equipment. In passenger mode, it was a double-decker plane that could carry up to 200 passengers, or in air ambulance mode, it could carry 127 litter patients and medical staff. The plane worked for the Air Force moving supplies for the Korean and Vietnam Wars. It worked for the Army as a large transport moving troops and heavy and oversized weapons and supplies. It also worked for NASA in the early years of the space race. It carried rockets and missiles from development sites all across America to Cape Canaveral, Florida for launching. Some of its more famous passengers of the time were Abel and Baker, the first monkeys who flew into space aboard a Jupiter rocket, which was also carried by a Globemaster II. The third Globemaster was, or is, actually the C-17. The C-17 Globemaster III is still on active duty today, though production of this mainstay cargo beast ended in 2015. The C-17 has a load capacity of nearly 171,000 pounds, almost 100,000 pounds more than the Globemaster II. As of now, there are no plans in development for a Globemaster IV. Though the C-17 is out of production, you can find some interesting discussions online about how the Air Force will continue to meet its heavy lift needs in the coming decades. I never worked with any of the Globemasters while I was in the Air Force. The Globemaster II was retired a few years before I joined, and the Globemaster III came on a few years after I left. The heavy lifters I provided weather support for were the C-141 Starlifter and the C-5 Galaxy. The Starlifter worked side-by-side -side with the Globemaster II in the 60s and the 70s, while the Galaxy, one of the largest planes in the world, is still on active duty today. No doubt, the Globemaster name is a good one and worth carrying on from one cargo master to the next. Other cargo planes from World War II, which had just ended a few years before, were effective, but the C-124 really looked modern and was built not just to move large cargo, but to manage that cargo and to make life easier for the crews who had to load and unload the plane. 
Believe it or not, some of the previous heavy lifters had to be taken apart in order to get the really big stuff inside. But outsized cargo could roll or drive right into the C-124, right through the large front-facing clamshell doors. Or it could be lifted into the cavernous cargo hold on hydraulic ramps, easy as pie. It even had an elevator under the plane for directly lifting into the main cargo area. No doubt, the C-124 was unique and looked like nothing else on the flight line. But there were problems. One of the main problems was fire. The four Pratt & Whitney engines were brand new to go along with the brand new airplane, and they had some shakedown issues. One crash of a C-124 in Japan was caused by an engine fire that occurred just minutes after takeoff. The crash, coming seven months after the Mount Gannett crash, became the largest aviation disaster of the time, killing all 129 people aboard. There were other problems too. It could not deliver cargo by parachute, which planes before and after could do. And since it couldn't airdrop, it had to land. And because it was so big and heavy, only certain airports and runways could manage this behemoth. Then, to get the cargo where it was needed, it would have to then be unloaded from the Globemaster and then reloaded onto smaller planes, trains, or trucks, and then transport it to where it was needed. Not a very efficient transport method. Compare that to today's C-17 that can not only airdrop, but can land on unimproved runways with short landings and takeoffs, getting the biggest and the heaviest cargo to its destination quickly and efficiently. In 1952, Propeller-driven aircraft were still the order of the day. Jets were obviously much faster, but the new jets were only just beginning to outshine the proven propeller technology, so they were still somewhat limited and expensive, and you couldn't just bolt on a jet engine to replace a piston engines. Planes had to be designed from the ground up for the new engines, so propeller aircraft still had the edge for a bit longer. But the C-124 was also slow and loud, inside and outside. Plus, it tended to shake a lot, even in calm flying conditions. It shook so much that it was given the nickname Old Shaky. And not just one airplane, but the entire fleet. It was an unfortunate moniker for a new airplane. But remember, the Air Force itself was brand new. What had been the Army Air Forces in World War II had become the United States Air Force in 1948. So the C-124 was not only the world's largest heavy lifter, it was also the first cargo plane designed for and by the newly formed Air Force. So there were bound to be some teething problems. And with the Korean War beginning in 1950, about the same time that the new Globemaster was introduced to active Air Force service, the plane was put to work in a serious way, right out of the gate. Despite accidents and fires, the plane was generally considered reliable and safe. But perhaps the C-124 will most be remembered as the drawing board for what was to come. The new Air Force was improving safety requirements and expanding cargo requirements while jet engines were becoming ubiquitous. The first jet cargo plane for the Air Force, the C-135 Stratolifter, came out in 1960 and was based on the familiar passenger version of the Boeing 367, which then became the Boeing 707. The 367 paved the way for the C-141 Starlifter, which was introduced in 1965. The propeller-driven cargo master soldiered on for quite a while after that, being finally retired in 1974. There are several C-124s on static display throughout the United States and one in Korea. The last flight of a Globemaster II was in 1986.
Let's move on now to the accident itself. On the 22nd of November, a C-124 loaded with service members departed McCord Air Force Base near Seattle and then crashed into the southern face of Mount Gannett in Alaska's Chugach Range. What happened? How did this plane end up in this tragic predicament? Was the plane lost? Was there a mechanical issue or failure? Was fuel an issue? Was the weather to blame? Well, bad weather was closing in, both on the mountain range and also on the plane's destination. It was night, and the westerly winds were blowing quite strong at flight level, stronger actually than forecast. However, when the plane did not show up on time at Elmendorf, nobody knew what had happened. For three days, as the storm raged on, nobody knew the fate or even the location of the potential crash of this aircraft and the 52 souls on board. However, looking at the map, it doesn't seem quite logical that the plane would have been in the neighborhood of this mountain. Based on the course and the destination of the Globemaster, it would not be an obvious place to search. Mount Gannett is a relatively tall mountain. Wikipedia lists it as the 11th tallest peak in the Chugach Range. It's listed officially as 9,663 feet, 2,935 meters. The surface ceiling for the C-124 is almost 22,000 feet or 6,700 meters, so plenty of ability to clear even the highest peak in the Chugach, which is just over 13,000 feet. And Mount Gannett's location, again about 60 miles east of Anchorage, is not exactly in line with the Elmendorf runway for an aircraft approaching from the south. And by that I mean, it's not like the Globemaster was already trying to line up on the runway. It was still too far away and too far east for that. I'm unsure of how Anchorage was navigated in the early 1950s, but the easy way is to fly in from the south over the Cook Inlet, not flying over the mountains to the east along the southern coast of the state. For modern jets approaching at above 30,000 feet, this is not a problem. But the mountains east of Anchorage are well known and you just can't fly into either airport, the civilian airport or the Air Force Base without making plans to avoid the mountains, one way or another. And that brings us to navigation before the age of GPS, but after the days of true celestial navigation. Back in the mid and late 20th century, typically all transcontinental and transoceanic airplanes, commercial and military, had a navigator on board to complement the pilot and co-pilot as the navigation was complex for those long, multi-leg flights. The navigator kept the plane on course and was responsible for positional awareness. However, as avionics and computers continued to advance, navigators were pretty much gone by the 1980s. Though, the older the plane, the more likely the need for a navigator. A plane like the B-52 bomber, first flown in 1952, is still flying today and still uses a navigator. The iconic 747, introduced in 1970, was not originally designed with a navigator as part of the crew, but perhaps the most famous 747 in the world, and one of the most complex, Air Force One, still uses a navigator. Smaller planes that don't typically have transcontinental goals don't typically need a navigator, and the pilot would handle all the needed navigation on his or her own. Charles Lindbergh, as an example, did it all by himself on his solo trip across the North Atlantic in 1927, 
so it could be done by the pilot while also flying the plane great distances. I remember when I took flying lessons in high school that it seemed the navigation, at least for me, was harder than the actual flying. I remember thinking that as a 17-year-old, this flying thing was pretty cool, if I could just get away from the navigation. Today, old-school star-based celestial navigation isn't even taught to pilots anymore. There was a time, not that long ago, when new planes included a window specifically to be used for celestial navigation, one that could look straight up at the stars rather than straight ahead at the horizon. Some called it an eyebrow window. For most modern airplanes of the late 20th century, it was there for a just-in-case scenario when the pilots might have had to look up at the stars if other systems failed. Even the world's fastest and most sophisticated airplane of the time, the SR-71 Blackbird, had a special window built in for viewing the stars. But this window was not for the pilot to view the stars, it was for the optical sensors on the airplane to view the stars. This allowed the world's fastest and highest flying airplane to fix its location using both modern sensors and old-school navigation techniques. But this has been all relegated to history. Celestial navigation today is a lost art. Before GPS, air crews could use land references in the daytime, but when that wasn't possible due to night or weather, air crews had a compass, paper maps and airways charts, their airspeed indicator, an altimeter, and a good stopwatch. Knowing your position, speed, and heading, and time, you can make turns at the appropriate time using the stopwatch. These items, the compass, the altimeter, etc., were all necessary at the time, but nobody has navigated like that in a long time. The real mainstay of aviation navigation today, and what put an end to all of that before, is radio navigation, where ground stations beam out a radio frequency that can be received by an airplane. The airplane then follows that signal to the known location of the transmission site, or the pilot would turn away from one frequency for another when a change in direction is desired. All the pilot had to do is stay on the signal. This system is known as the VOR. That's a very high frequency omni-range station. VOR is a global system using ground-based transmission stations emitting location-specific radio frequencies that allow pilots to crisscross the world without having to look at the stars or maps or need to time their turns with a stopwatch. This was developed in 1937 and was in widespread use by the mid-1940s. Today, with GPS so dominant and reliable, VORs are being slowly phased out until we reach a bare necessity of stations to maintain a minimally functional network, kind of a fail-safe or a just-in-case support network. But what about this Globemaster? It was reported that all the plane had to go on was the radio beacon, a compass, an altimeter, and a stopwatch. There were no outside visual references available as it was dark with heavy clouds, and since the VOR navigation system was deployed just a few years before, had it reached the frontier of Alaska? Was there a VOR on Middleton Island? Was there a VOR at Cordova? I'll talk more about Middleton and Cordova in a moment. But what about coastal Canada? Today, of course, the answer is yes, these locations have VORs. But in 1952, I don't know. You could make a strong argument that the VOR was most needed in areas like this, like the coast of Alaska or Canada, where a navigation error would likely lead to death. But was a VOR network in place? And if it was, 
Was it functional and operating? There was no reference to this in any of my research. And what about the plane? Was the VOR system in place, but the plane did not have the VOR equipment on board? No, the state-of-the-art transcontinental Globemaster II, built specifically to transit the globe, did indeed have the necessary radio equipment on board. In fact, radio interference related to the weather was mentioned in the accident report as a contributing factor to the crash. More on this later. Now, what about Cordova and this Middleton Island place? It was reported that the plane cleared the Middleton Island navigation point, and then there's nothing ever heard from the airplane again. Middleton is a small island in the northern Gulf of Alaska, about 80 miles from the nearest land with an airport. That would be Cordova, Alaska, itself a small coastal fishing village with a 1950 census population of not quite 1,200 people. Today, it's just a little bit more than double that. Although Cordova, surprisingly, has two airports, both of which were in use and operational in 1952. You may remember hearing of Cordova before, as it was the village just 10 miles away from the Exxon Valdez oil tanker disaster in 1989. I'm unsure what the runway situation in Cordova was like in 1952. Remember, we're talking about a huge airplane. It can't land just anywhere. My guess is that neither of the Cordova airports had the capability to land a C-124. On the other hand, Cordova could only be accessed by air or by sea. There were no roads then to connect Cordova to the rest of the world, and that's still the case today. So I'm sure that even in 1952, Cordova had a lot of air traffic, which is why they had two airports. But a C-124 was not likely the type of airplane the runways were built for. Today, the larger airport has a 7,500-foot paved runway. The rest of the runways in Cordova are gravel. What about Middleton? Could they have landed at Middleton if necessary? Well, the crew likely had not yet realized they were in trouble or lost, if that's what actually happened. They may have passed over the small island, oblivious to what the future held. So let's not take too much time here trying to figure out if landing on Middleton is or was a possibility. I think the short answer is no. Even today, the island is listed as uninhabited, though there is a runway in a National Weather Service NEXRAD radar site. The runway was not there in 1952. And again, I'm not convinced that the crew knew that they were lost at the time. They likely flew by both places without a second thought. So what went wrong? Well, we've already talked about the where and the what. The plane hit the southern face of Mount Gannett at about 8,000 feet, and the weather, it was snowing with heavy clouds, and it was night. But why? Why did this airplane hit this mountain? And I'll guess that's the million-dollar question. It's been reported that the plane was navigating with the, quote, barest of navigational aids, unquote. It was following a radio beacon. This was likely a VOR, but it doesn't have to be. And as I just mentioned, nothing in my research indicated that it was actually a VOR signal the plane was following. And there are other radio frequencies that a plane could lock onto and follow. It's well known that the Japanese pilots on their way to bomb Pearl Harbor 11 years earlier used regular AM radio frequencies from Hawaii to confirm they were on the correct course. The Globemaster struck the southern face of Mount Gannett. 
So that would indicate the plane was traveling north. To me, this is peculiar. Why would they be traveling north some 50 miles east of their destination? Mount Gannett is a bit more than 100 miles inland from the open waters of the Gulf of Alaska, but 40 miles inland from Prince William Sound. To a lost air crew, even a crew who didn't know they were lost, could this have been mistaken for a southern approach to Anchorage? Could the approach to Mount Gannett somehow have been mistaken for an approach over the Kenai Peninsula and the Cook Inlet into Anchorage? Mount Gannett is 61.2 degrees north latitude, so is Elmendorf Air Force Base. Could the crew have been asking themselves, hey, how come we don't see the lights of Anchorage down there? just before they ran into Mount Gannett. Or, because they were in heavy clouds, could they have just assumed that the lights were indeed below them? And then there's the wind forecast. Turns out, it was very wrong. The crew was told to expect 40 knots from the west, but the actual wind was 80 knots from the west. One plane in the area reported 90 knots at 10,000 feet. Could this have blown the crew more than 50 miles off course to the east? If they were following a radio beacon, VOR or otherwise, the wind shouldn't have mattered. Well, the wind mattered, of course, but you would still follow the signal and steer into it to compensate for the wind. But if they were on a radio frequency, which one were they following, and why would they be following a signal that would have directed them over Mount Gannett? To me, at this point, they were no longer on a radio frequency as the icy weather makes those signals difficult to lock onto. If the weather caused them to lose the beacon and they can't get a fix from the stars and the navigator hasn't been keeping track of their position, they're lost. And then there's a radio transmission that a Northwest pilot in the area heard on the distress frequency that said, quote, if we're going to land, we might as well land here, unquote. I'll talk more about this mysterious transmission in a few minutes. There are just too many things that don't make sense here. If they were following a radio frequency to Anchorage, why were they near Mount Gannett? If they were experiencing engine trouble or some other malfunction that was causing them to consider making an unplanned landing, as suggested by the transmission heard by the Northwest pilot, how did they find themselves near Mount Gannett? When did the Northwestern pilot hear this radio distress call? And what a strange distress call. It was not a call for help on the distress frequency. Instead, it sounds just like one pilot talking to the other. That's not the kind of thing that you would expect to hear being transmitted on the emergency frequency. But still, if they were following a beacon, wouldn't they somehow be on course for Anchorage rather than flying north towards interior Alaska? And then there's this, and this is just me thinking out loud. But could they have called an audible? and changed their course from Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage to Ladd Air Force Base in Fairbanks because the weather around Anchorage was so bad. If they had cleared Mount Gannett, then it was just a straight shot to Ladd Air Force Base in Fairbanks. I'll make an argument here that instead of being lost or struggling to find their way to Anchorage, they could have been on course for Fairbanks, just too low. We'll never know. In my research, the only destination ever stated was Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage. If they had made the decision to head to Fairbanks instead of Anchorage, they did not, or for some reason could not, communicate it to anyone but themselves. 
To me though, when the destination airport is unusable because of bad weather, you set a course for the alternate airport. Maybe you try to shoot an approach to your destination airport, and if it goes poorly, you move on to the alternate, or maybe you just cut your losses early and head to the alternate airport without all that bother. Of course, you would communicate that decision to somebody. But if they made the decision to go to LAD somewhere after Middleton Island or perhaps somewhere over the Prince William Sound, then a direct route to LAD would take them pretty close to Mount Gannett. Another concern I have is the altitude and the temperature. Most of the airlines of the day considered 11,000 feet in the wintertime to be the minimum safe altitude in that area. Yet this Air Force pilot had been at 9,000 feet and hit the mountain at 8,000 feet. The cold air requires altimeter corrections. Cold air is more dense and without the correction, the plane could be lower than indicated by the altimeter. Did the captain make this correction? It's not known. What is known is that four days after this crash, the authorities at Elmendorf Air Force Base issued a notice to raise the minimum safe altitude for military pilots to 11,000 feet, just like the airlines. And then there's the big question I have as an aviation meteorologist, why were they even flying? This was not addressed in any of the accident reports, but it was night and the weather was bad. Although, the original weather briefing for Elmendorf received by the crew before departing McCord indicated fair conditions at their arrival time. That changed. At some point during the flight, the weather forecast took a turn and called for deteriorating conditions at Elmendorf, bad enough that they likely wouldn't be able to land there. It was also reported, quote, landing at a nearby diversion airport was impossible, unquote. I don't know what a diversion airport is, but it's not a recognized aviation term. It may have just come from a non-aviation person writing an article for a newspaper, or it may have been kind of a hip pocket, just in case sort of thing that a pilot might want to have or use in case the weather took a quick turn for the worse. Or maybe it was a holdover term from the olden days. I don't know. And I don't know what the definition of nearby is either. This is Alaska. Nearby means something completely different in Alaska than it does in New Jersey. The forecast for LAD, the official alternate airport, was fine. If they were in the air when they got the word that Elmendorf was bad, then their choice was to go elsewhere, like LAD, their official alternate airport. Or perhaps they could turn around and go back home to McCord. But with so few options and likely not wanting to turn around, LAD would be a reasonable, if not the best, option. That, by the way, is why LAD was chosen as the alternate airport. LAD Air Force Base, by the way, was turned over to the Army in 1958 and renamed Fort Wainwright in 1961, while the airfield facility was named LAD Army Airfield. Let's talk about the alternate airport for a moment because this is an important consideration. Every flight plan requires an alternate airport, someplace the plane can land if the primary destination becomes unusable, primarily for weather-related reasons, but there could be any number of reasons the destination airport could become unusable. For example, the primary airport on the Canary Islands, Las Palmas, was unexpectedly closed on March 27, 1977 due to, of all things, a bomb threat. 
This forced all aircraft to land instead at an airport on the island of Tenerife, 66 miles to the northwest. Perhaps you know this date and location, and the situation that would become the worst aviation disaster of all time, all stemming from this unexpected airport closure. But the point here is that an airport can be closed and aircraft diverted to other airports at the drop of a hat. Pilots have to be prepared for this. It's better to plan for this in advance rather than trying to figure it out literally on the fly. Still, I'm left to wonder what this aircrew was thinking. And let's not forget the wind. They were told a westerly wind at 40 knots. Well, there's typically only one way to get a westerly wind in Alaska or the Gulf of Alaska, and that's behind a weather system. In late November or early December, there is typically only one type of weather system moving through the Gulf of Alaska, a big one. Let's look at the facts that this aircrew had as they were walking out to their C-124 Globemaster II at McCord Air Force Base near Seattle for their departure to Elmendorf Air Force Base near Anchorage. Number one, a flight of perhaps seven or eight hours to Elmendorf. Number two, at night. Number three, an acceptable weather forecast at the destination, but a big winter storm system in the Gulf of Alaska that should have been a red flag for a possible change to the forecast en route, which might indicate a change to the alternate airport would be necessary. And number four, with a plane that had standard navigation equipment that, compared to today, was basic and without a lot of room for error. And I'll add number five, few options if anything went bad. And the last consideration was the fact that this crew was in charge of the largest heavy lift airplane in the world, loaded with 52 people and whatever other cargo they were carrying. At what point does the margin for safety become so small that you opt to delay? Under the best of conditions, this was not a flight with a lot of options. If you're flying from London to Rome, there are a lot of options. Boston to Dallas, there are a lot of options. Seattle to Anchorage, very few options. I mean, what else would have had to go wrong or be marginalized here for this captain to say, nope, not tonight, fellas, let's try it again tomorrow. In episodes one, two, and three of Radar Contact Lost, I talked about the confidence or perhaps the overconfidence of a pilot. A seasoned combat pilot flies into the Empire State Building. A pilot who disregarded the warnings of his co-pilot and then crashed less than a mile after takeoff. And a pilot with 31 years flying with a major airline who crashed a mile short of the runway. Could overconfidence have contributed to this crash? Could this pilot, a pilot likely near the height of his career and piloting one of the largest and most advanced airplanes in the world, could he have thought, hey, no problem, I got this. I said a few moments ago that nothing was ever heard from the Globemaster after Middleton Island. There was, actually. There was a distant, scratchy radio transmission picked up by the Northwest Airlines pilot that I mentioned earlier. He heard, quote, As long as we have to land, we might as well land here. That's it. Nothing else. It was attributed to the C-124 crew because it was on the 500 kilocycles distress frequency used by the Air Force and others. Kilocycles, by the way, is the term that was used in the 1950s. Today it would be kilohertz. Because it was from about the time and area where the C-124 would have been, the northern Prince William Sound, around midnight local time, the transmission indicated an unplanned need to land. 
which would indicate some sort of trouble, malfunction, or equipment failure. So what was the malfunction? It's unknown. Were they struggling with the airplane before they knew they were lost? That also is unknown. Where was this proposed landing? Again, unknown. How long before they ran into Mount Gannett after this transmission? Unknown. What is known is that they didn't land wherever they were talking about as they found Mount Gannett instead. Were they perhaps trying to land when they hit the mountain? Unknown, though unlikely given the terrain. The Northwest pilot reported a few more details. He said that near where he picked up the transmission, his aircraft experienced, quote, sharp, moderate turbulence, moderate downdrafts, and moderate icing for a short period of time, unquote. At the time, Northwest Airlines was flying the Boeing 377 on its Pacific legs. This is a passenger plane, very similar in size and appearance to the Douglas C-124 Globemaster, even sharing the same number and the same type of engines. The 28-cylinder Pratt & Whitney Wasp Major radial piston engine. The type of weather impacting the Northwest plane would have impacted the Air Force plane in a similar way. It seemed worth noting by the Northwest captain, but it didn't seem to be alarming to him. I've not mentioned the onboard weather radar yet on this Globemaster 2, and I should take a moment to do so. The weather radar featured into Episode 1 and Episode 3 of Radar Contact Lost. I discussed how radar was a factor, or a concern, in each of those crashes. And because this plane was flying at night in bad weather and mountainous terrain, you might be wondering about the radar. Well, I'll keep it short. Despite this being a relatively new airplane and a relatively new design, it was one of the earlier models to roll off the production line and it therefore did not have weather radar installed. Later models came with the radar from the factory, and some of the earlier models were later retrofitted with radar, but not this one. It seems to me that a large, loaded airplane flying at night in bad weather over mountainous terrain could have benefited from onboard weather radar. Let's move on, because now we're at the point where the plane has hit the mountain and a rescue must be organized. Remember, I talked earlier about the bad weather and how the westerly winds would indicate a weather system moving through the Gulf of Alaska. And because it was late November, it would likely be a big weather system. Well, it was. Not only did all that bad weather cause problems for the Globemaster crew as it attempted to reach Anchorage, but it also caused problems for the rescue operation. By the time the weather cleared and a search and rescue mission could be mounted, three days had passed since the plane didn't show up at Elmendorf Air Force Base. It then took three more days and 32 military aircraft to finally locate the wreckage, six days after the plane hit the mountain. To rescuers, it appeared that an avalanche, one caused either by the weather or by the plane crash itself, had further buried the plane. When the rescuers finally found the crash site, only a small bit of the tail was visible above the snow. And it was a broad area to search, most of it freshly covered in a lot of snow. The last contact with the plane had been after it cleared Middleton Island, and the radio contact reported by the Northwest pilot. That meant the area to be searched included a large portion of the Prince William Sound and a large portion of the mountain ranges of southern Alaska. 
a basic box that I drew on Google Maps of what I considered to be a reasonable search area quickly became more than 5,000 square miles or more than 8,000 square kilometers. And that's probably too small of an area. Let me add here that the search and rescue teams in Alaska are very good. Even in the 1950s, they had a lot of experience, unfortunately. Many people find air travel in Alaska a requirement due to the long distances and lack of roads. In a 2021 report, it was estimated that more than 80% of Alaskan communities are not served by the state's road network. I've never been to Alaska, but that sounds almost impossible to believe. Most people in Alaska consider air travel to be as normal as how the rest of us look at taxi, bus, and train travel. But with all that flying, sadly, comes a lot of airplane accidents. Alaska has 42% of all aviation fatalities of commuter, air taxi, and charter flights nationwide. And note, that statistic does not include commercial, general aviation, or military crashes. Other reports indicate that airplane crashes in all categories are more than two times higher in Alaska than the national average, despite the population of Alaska being less than 1% of the national population. Alaska has been called an airplane graveyard. PlaneCrashMap.com lists more than 2,000 plane crashes in Alaska since 1982. That's almost one per week for 40 years. It's no wonder then that the most active search and rescue team in the Department of Defense today is based in Alaska, the Air Force's 212th Rescue Squadron. So, once the wreckage was spotted in 1952, it quickly became apparent that there were no survivors and that the mission became a recovery rather than a rescue mission. Even after the weather cleared, it was only with great difficulty that the recovery teams were able to reach the site. In fact, it was so difficult that the recovery operation was soon called off. It was at this point I mentioned at the top of the podcast that the Air Force announced that the operation was terminated and that there would be no remains to bury. While the Air Force seemingly turned its back on the Globemaster and the service members who died on the mountain, Mother Nature most certainly did not. Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, the crash site wreckage and human remains were further entombed in snow and ice. Until 2012, when an Air National Guard Blackhawk helicopter was flying over the Chugach Range and spotted a yellow life raft on the snow below. But this wasn't near Mount Gannett, it was more than 14 miles away. Therefore, it was not an immediate eureka moment for the helicopter crew that the Globemaster crash had been found. When it was determined that the life raft had indeed come from the Globemaster crash 60 years before, it then became apparent that the crash had slid down the mountain and had been swallowed up by the slow-moving frozen river of ice known as the Colony Glacier. It was at this time that a real rescue mission was finally launched. Thanks to climate change, snowpack and glaciers are receding and shrinking around the world, and this area of Alaska is no different. This is how the life raft was uncovered. The melt was finally giving up the crash site. With the rescue now underway, it quickly became obvious that this would not be a simple or fast recovery operation. The glacier did not just tenderly move the intact crash site downhill with the rest of the snow and ice over 60 years. 
With the moving ice, the wreckage was ripped and torn and spread across possibly miles of terrain. And what terrain? Most of it is inaccessible by wheeled or treaded vehicles, so the team has to be airlifted in and out by helicopter. But day after day, summer after summer, more items are being recovered. Operation Colony Glacier is a big slash small operation. The big part is that it's managed and staffed by personnel from the Air Force's Alaskan Air Command, the Alaska National Guard, the Air Force's Mortuary Affairs Operations, the U.S. Army Alaska, the 673rd Air Base Wing based at Elmendorf, and the Air Force's 3rd Wing also based at Elmendorf. On the weather side, the operation is supported by the 3rd Operational Support Squadron at Elmendorf. These weather specialists provide operational weather support to Operation Colony Glacier to ensure safe insertion and extraction by the Alaska National Guard helicopters. And perhaps I should have clarified this earlier in the podcast, but Elmendorf Air Force Base has been known officially as Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson since 2010, when Elmendorf merged with the Army's Fort Richardson. I've mentioned that the recovery has been ongoing summer after summer since 2012. Summer after summer is what's key here. The crash site is only about 300 or so miles from the Arctic Circle, and there's only a relatively short summer window when the rescue operations can occur. A former project officer for Operation Colony Glacier has said that the icy landscape, the crevasses, the unpredictable nature of the weather, and the ever-changing environment of the glacier present very challenging conditions to the mission. The safety of the team is paramount and the number one priority. That is understandable for sure. And it's easy to understand why the window for the operation is only open for a limited time in the warmer months of summer. But here's the small part of this big-slash-small operation. Each year, when the summer window is open, six days per week, weather permitting, up to just 10 members will visit and work the site. And they plan to do this work until all the debris and human remains are recovered. It's a dangerous area to work, and so the team is kept small to minimize the risk, as well as to minimize the impact to the environment. And it is emotionally draining for the team as they sift through snow, ice, water, and rubble for the smallest items from the crash. Sometimes it's a part of the Globemaster, like a radio knob or a wheel. Sometimes it's a personal effect, like a small camera. But sometimes it's human remains, like a tooth, that can then later be identified by DNA. As of June 2022, 47 of the 52 service members who died on Mount Gannett have been identified. An absolutely remarkable achievement. And with that comes closure to more and more families who lost their loved ones long ago on that dark, snowy, frigid night in the mountains of Alaska. The Soldier's Creed in part states, I will never leave a fallen comrade. And this couldn't have greater meaning and devotion than on Colony Glacier. Once found, human remains are then flown to the Air Force Mortuary Affairs Operations based at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The process ensures dignity, honor, and respect. Once identified, the remains and any personal effects are then returned to the family for burial. With this closure for 47 families, I must also mention that the clock is ticking for the remaining families. The Colony Glacier is moving, and it's nearing where the glacier merges with Lake George. 
with continued movement and melting of the glacier, the wreckage and any human remains will reach the lake and then fall to the bottom of the lake, an event that will likely end any additional recovery. The distance from the most recent area where human remains have been found is just 656 feet or about 200 meters from the lake's edge, which means perhaps only a few more years, a few more short summer windows before Operation Colony Glacier comes to an end. The National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, was formed in 1967, well after this crash occurred, so there is no NTSB accident investigation report available. And military crash reports aren't always available, but I did find several reports, including the declassified report from the Air Force, which I'm sure is how these other reports were populated. These other reports came from the Bureau of Aircraft Accident Archives and the Aviation Safety Network. To summarize, the reports noted the probable cause was a navigation error attributed to the pilot. The contributing cause, the winds at flight level were incorrectly forecast. And a probable contributing cause, precipitation static, which made radio reception impossible. And let me add my note here, given the altitude and the air temperature, the precipitation noted in the report would be ice. The declassified report by the Alaskan Air Command under the Department of the Air Force was lengthy. It was 167 pages. The investigation board met on December 8th, 10 days after the wreckage had been found. The Air Force report mentioned a few things that the other reports did not. It mentioned that icing and turbulence was an issue. It also mentioned that the radio navigation system on the C-124 was, quote, as good as you can get, unquote. The investigation board also could not confirm if the C-124 passed over or missed Middleton Island, indicating that an exact time and location, perhaps an hour before the crash, is unknown. The investigation board meeting was transcribed word for word, and it was an interesting read. The board consisted of Air Force pilots, meteorologists, and others. One comment, and I will paraphrase, said that the conditions of icing and turbulence are not uncommon in this area and that most pilots will gain a little altitude to lessen the effects of the dangerous weather. Say, climb to 11,000 feet instead of staying at 9,000 feet where the effects would likely be at maximum. Quoting the report, this pilot chose to stay there and fight out the weather instead of going to 11,000 feet. One of the findings from the report by the Air Force Inspector General's office, six months after the crash, was that the crew should have had better route familiarization. The pilot in command had only done this route twice, the co-pilot six times, and it was the first time for the navigator. Again, none of these reports mentioned a possible change in course from Elmendorf in Alaska to Ladd in Fairbanks, despite a course that put Fairbanks in the direction the Globemaster was flying. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the crash of the C-124 Globemaster II on Mount Gannett, check out the books entitled The Longest Flight Home and Gifts from a Glacier, The Quest for an American Flag and 52 Souls, both available on Amazon or perhaps can be ordered from your local bookstore. Neither of these books, by the way, were the basis for any of my research, but they do look interesting. 
The declassified Air Force report is online and you can find it at the Air Force Historical Research Agency. The 164-page PDF is an interesting read. It includes the letter from the Northwest Airlines pilot written to the Air Force about the transmission he heard on the distress frequency. The report also includes passenger manifests, maintenance records, blurry and faint weather charts, and even air traffic control transcripts. I'll warn you in advance, though, some of the pages look like they're only poor photocopies of the last page of triplicate carbon paper. They're fuzzy, smudgy, and generally unreadable. Unfortunately, this was not uncommon in the decades before the digital age. If you'd like to learn more about the ongoing rescue and recovery efforts, search online for Operation Colony Glacier. You'll find lots of information. The Public Affairs Office at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson can also be helpful. I'd like to thank the team here at RCL. On the air traffic control side, we have former controllers Cindy and Michael Hentz and Tony Gorham. Tony and Cindy are also in charge of our airports and procedures research. On the weather side, we have meteorologists Chris Abair, Joe Spain, and Nathan Stanford with expertise in climate, climatology, and severe weather. And on the pilot side, we have retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and far from retiring FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. It's a great team, thanks to each of you. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force, broadcast, and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. If you like this episode, give a like, leave a review, and tell your friends. And let me say that at this early stage of Radar Contact Lost, reviews and word of mouth are very helpful. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. And lastly, let me thank you, the listeners. As this episode was being published, Radar Contact Lost is closing in on 300 total downloads. I'm blown away by this. Thank you for your time and support. I'm Dave Gorham. <laughs>